Welcome everyone, I'm Emma Norris, I'm the Deputy Director of the Institute for Governance and I'm delighted to be hosting our next keynote at this conference. We're really excited to hear from the Right Honourable Ed Miliband MP, Shadow Secretary of State for Climate Change and Net Zero. Labour has made it clear that climate is going to be at the heart of its pitch for government at the next election. It's one of its missions and Ed, just yesterday you were challenging the current government on its complacency um, on meeting climate goals on the back of the recent Climate Change Committee report. Labour's plans have also been in the headlines recently. One of their party's headline promises was, of course, to spend £28 billion a year on green investment until 2030 from the first year in power. But it recently clarified that it would deliver that £28 billion from the second half um, of a parliament rather than the start to meet fiscal rules. I'm sure we'll be talking about the £28 billion this afternoon. And well, today is our chance to hear from Ed on his assessment of the current government's approach to net zero and what he would do if he ends up in government. We'll be uh, live tweeting along from at IFG events using the IFG net zero hashtag. So please do follow and tweet along. We'll be starting with an opening speech from Ed and then there'll be some discussion between us and I'll make sure I leave lots of time for questions from the audience. If you're joining us online and welcome to everybody who is joining us online. I know there's hundreds of you there. You can send in questions anytime from now. Uh, you using Slido, so please do. Ed, over to you. Thanks so much. Um, Emma, thanks so much. And uh, can I just say what a pleasure it is to be here at the uh, IFG, because the Institute uh, is a brilliant forum for debate, uh, a place where better public policy is made, uh, and a source of advice for government and opposition alike. And I just want to thank you for your work. It also has as your senior fellow, uh, Jill Rutter, my uh, erstwhile colleague from the Treasury, uh, or maybe I should describe her as a co-star of, of a film that, about us uh, 25 years ago, uh, which you can find on the internet, called Out of the Shadows. Uh, and then uh, We Are the Treasury. Um, I, I, it, it made me sort of recommend against Fly on the Wall documentaries. But anyway, that is another uh, story. Um, uh, Emma, I, I really welcome the focus for this conference on uh, Net Zero. And it's a pleasure to follow uh, my colleague and, and friend Chris Skidmore, uh, who spoke to you earlier. And, and this is the argument I want to make. First, that while the climate crisis is obviously the great threat of the 21st century, uh, tackling it by getting to net zero is a great opportunity. Second, that our plans for climate and energy will be at the centre of Labour's next manifesto in a way that I think is unprecedented for any major party. And third, and this is perhaps a very appropriate thing to be saying at the IFG, we recognise that the massive challenge we face is one not just of policy formulation, but the challenge of delivery. And I want to suggest some of our thinking uh, about how we get that right. Uh, first on the opportunity, I, I could make the case to you about why this is the decisive decade on for climate action, why we are so far off track and why we need to show leadership. Those things are very, very important and I hope are well understood by this uh, audience. I think what's changed in the 15 years since I was uh, Climate and Energy Secretary is something else, which is that the case is now, if you like, a broader case than it would have been if I'd been speaking to you back then. And, and really, in the case of energy, that's about bills, security and jobs. And I just want to say a little bit about each. This is, if you like, the opportunity. The, the, the argument of the Stern Review, which you'll be familiar with in the 2000s, was that in the long run, it was far less expensive to take action on climate than not to act. In other words, the, the costs you'd be storing up by not acting were greater than the costs of acting. I think what's really interesting about, about the debate, and perhaps is insufficiently understood, is that what was true in the long run has now, at least in the case of energy, become true in the short run as well. 
So the most remarkable fact in this whole area for me is that in the last decade alone, public and private action has lowered the cost of wind energy by 60% and the cost of solar energy by 89%. Now, these are obviously remarkable changes. It means that for 90% of the world, new, fossil, new renewables are cheaper than new fossil fuels. And for Britain, it means the cost of renewables are today three times less than the cost of fuels. And indeed, in the peak of the crisis following Russia's invasion of Ukraine last summer, they were nine times less. Now, why is that important? Because the sprint to green energy is not just the right climate choice, not just the right long-term economic choice, it's the right choice now to tackle the cost of living crisis. On energy security, the, the striking fact for me of the last 18 months has been that we only imported 4% of our gas from Russia before their invasion of Ukraine, but we were the worst hit, according to the IMF, we were the worst hit European country, well, Western European country. Well, how is that possible? It's possible because the price of fuels is set on the, the price of fossil fuels is set on the international market wherever they come from. Or as one commentator put it, myth, extracting more North Sea gas lowers prices. Fact, UK production isn't large enough to materially impact the global price of gas. That commentator was Greg Hans, currently chairman of the Conservative Party who, uh, when he was energy minister last year. And why is this important? Because what this crisis has shown is that we are so exposed because we are so dependent on fossil fuels. And as long as we remain so dependent, we remain at the mercy of the Putins of the world manipulating the global price of fossil fuels. So green energy is not some nice-to-have luxury. It's the only route to energy security in the dangerous world in which we live. As the Irish climate minister Eamon Ryan put it, I think, very well, no one has ever weaponized access to the sun or the wind. We need to move off fossil fuels as fast as possible for our security, for our society, and for our economy. And then on jobs, as Joe Biden has shown remarkably, in my view, it's become very clear that net zero is the opportunity of the 21st century and the global race is now on. And here there is an absolutely crucial role for government, shaping an industrial policy for the country and providing what I think my friends in the US administration call catalytic public investment. Catalytic because the billions of public investment leave us in tens of billions or hundreds of billions of private investment. And indeed, I think what we're learning, not just in energy, but in other areas, is that, of course, there are upfront costs of the net zero transition, but this partnership between public and private can lower those costs across the board. So put all this together, and why is the case different? Because the, climate, the case for climate action is now definitively the case for lower bills, energy security, good jobs, and, of course, climate leadership, in a way that wasn't so clearly the case a decade ago. This then takes me to my second point, which is that energy and climate will be at the centre of Labour's next manifesto, one of Keir Starmer's five missions for government. And it will be so central because climate is the most important and consequential long-term issue we face, and because, as I've already uh, set out, uh, we can make this, better, this country better immediately by acting on it. So what's our series of policy commitments? Just to remind this audience, 2030 clean power, all of our electricity coming from zero carbon sources to cut bills for families and businesses. GB Energy, a publicly owned energy company to drive clean energy jobs and supply chains in Britain. A new national wealth fund to co-invest with the private sector, tackling big market failures uh, like investing in our ports. A British jobs bonus for companies that manufacture in industrial areas and coastal communities of Britain. 
which was announced in our recent missions launch. Insulating 19 million cold, drafty homes over a decade to cut bills, uh, gas imports and emissions. Funded by our Green Prosperity Plan, Emma, as you said, rising to 28 billion a year at the latest in the second half of the Parliament. And, and I genuinely believe that this is a world-leading agenda which can transform Britain for the better and also, very importantly, put us back in a climate leadership role internationally too, and maybe we'll get into that in questions. And this is just the start. We will be developing plans for transport, nature, air pollution, and public buildings. But then this takes me to my third point. The headline commitments, as I know from my time in government, are all very well, uh, but what about the challenge of delivery? And I'm under no illusions that uh, the department, if I'm the Secretary of State, is going to have an absolutely massive delivery challenge. That's why we're working to be day one ready with our plans for government so that we can deliver where this government has failed to do so. And I, I just want to suggest, and this is be good for the discussion, but I want to suggest some ways in which we can do better than this government is doing. First of all, all of my experience in government tells me you need a North Star. You need a clear place at which you are aiming. We know what our North Star is, which is 2030 Clean Power, which will be at the centre of Keir's uh, mission. It's important for government direction. It's also important for the signal it sends to investors. But a North Star is necessary, but it isn't sufficient. You need to be consistent in its pursuit, and we will be. So we will use all the power sources at our disposal to make this happen. Doubling onshore wind, no longer having a totally irrational, in my view, ban on onshore wind in England. Trebling solar, quadrupling offshore wind, as well as an important role, supporting role for nuclear. No picking and choosing, and I think this is a big problem of government because of whim and capriciousness. There'll also be a role for hydrogen and carbon capture and storage. But then even mission and consistency can only get you so far. What do I observe about this, uh, this central mission of 2030 clean power? And you know, the government, people think our 2030 clean power plan is very ambitious, and it is. The government has a 2035 clean power target, uh, which they're well off track to meet. What, what is it that is uh, inhibiting uh, this? Now, most of this uh, clean power is going to come from private investment. And, and I think that the, the biggest inhibitors, and they will be well known to this audience, are what I call the four horsemen of the apocalypse. Planning, grid, supply chains, and skills. And I think here people haven't necessarily yet fully understood the importance of Keir's approach of what he calls mission-driven government. Because why have these barriers not been broken down under this government? You know, many members of this government care about these uh, issues. I think they've got innumerable key competing priorities. So it's not clear why this should be a bigger priority than anything else. They've got silo-based working and in my view, they have become deeply lethargic and unserious in their approach, perhaps because some of them think they won't be in government after the next election. So what can we do differently? The first thing to say is 2030 clean power, just taking that as the example, will have the authority of the prime minister to make it happen as well as the chancellor. And Rachel Reeves' advocacy for this agenda is, in my view, incredibly important because we all know that the Treasury can be a big block on these ambitions. But beyond that... We are also seeking to take inspiration and learn from models that have worked in recent years. And Emma, you and I have discussed this along with others at the IFG. The most obvious example of this is the Vaccines Task Force. Um, a clear national priority, 
a range of talents working on it from inside and outside government with a mix of skills. And this is the, the obvious crucial point, the clear authority of the prime minister to make it happen. And the interesting thing about this, because I get asked about whether this is possible, 2030 Clean Power, and we've set out an analysis from Ember that explains how you can get there, is there are other examples from around the world which tell us that when a government has political will, it can make things happen. Germany has built LNG terminals within seven months to get off Russian gas, which nobody thought was going to be possible. And so, of course, it requires a single-minded pursuit of this goal, but that's what we intend to have. And I want to take one example, which is planning, where we want to be builders, not blockers. I think, the, I think it's so interesting, this planning debate, because we have a ban on onshore wind in this country, but the Department of Energy and Net Zero's own polling, just released a few days ago, says that by 20 to 1, people support onshore wind. Even if you ask people, how about onshore wind or solar in your own area, they support it by eight to one. Um, and so it's kind of sort of remarkable. Um, I think the, the, the government is remarkably behind people on this, and it's obviously the onshore wind ban has raised bills by 180 pounds a year for every family. What are we going to do on planning, though? Have we set out a series of reforms, and it's in our missions document for those who are interested. Month, not year timetables for planning decisions. Every relevant regulator having a net zero duty. I mean, it's extraordinary that Ofgem still doesn't have a net zero duty. I mean, it's no wonder the system is gummed up. And, uh, you know, this change has now been accepted by the government in the energy bill, so finally they will get it. But also, we think the planning inspectorate, which is also part of the issue, should have a net zero duty. Every relevant regulator should be part of this national mission. That's why Keir setting it as a national mission is so important, because everybody's got to be uh, part of it. And then also, crucially, local communities getting direct benefits from clean energy infrastructure. If you're asking communities to host clean energy infrastructure, and I'm applying this not just to onshore wind, but more widely, then there should be local, uh, substantive local community uh, benefits. And I think that, I think the reforms plus the determination to break down the barriers plus uh, the working across departments is part of the answer. I'm not saying the whole answer, but part of the answer to, 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 to dealing with these major stumbling blocks that we are uh, facing. In addition, GB Energy can help on this. We are miles behind other countries on local clean energy infrastructure. Germany, Denmark, uh, other European countries do it. We don't. That's why we've said GB Energy will uh, work with local authorities, the private sector and communities, to build clean energy infrastructure and provide direct benefits to local citizens. Can this make a difference? Yes. Uh, our analysis, again, authorised by outsiders, is that it can make the equivalent of two and a half nuclear power stations uh, within five years. Um, and again, it's something that other countries do as a matter of routine and talk to companies like RWE and they will say that's exactly what they do in Germany. Planning, we're on the way to some of the reforms that are needed. We're going to have more to say on grid, supply chains, and skills before the election as well. And that is the, a, a lot of the work that is consuming the time of my team. I, I say that because I just want to be clear with this audience. I know that if Labour wins the election in this area, almost unlike any other, or even more than any other, we won't have the luxury of saying we can sit around for a year thinking, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, we're going to have to be day one ready, and that's what we intend 
uh, to be. There are other is crucial issues like the role for local government uh, as partners in our work in everything from clean energy to home uh, insulation. And I know also it's got to be the, the focus of the Secretary of State. Let me just end, Emma, on this point. I think Britain is a country crying out for profound change. But I just want to make this point to end with, and I think it's true so much in this area. If a Labour government is elected, we're not going to be able to achieve the change we need on our own. And it would be foolish to think we could. We need a profound national effort. The contribution in this area of people as agents of change in their communities, the contribution of business ingenuity and investment, the contribution of people, and I think this is really important from all political parties who care about uh, this issue. This is not just going to be a Labour government on its own. I will want to work with people from other political parties to make it happen. The contribution of civil servants who I think have huge talent to offer. The contribution of the best scientists and engineers playing their part inside government, and I underline that, and outside. The contribution of academics to provide advice, critique, and engagement. And the contribution of civil society to hold us accountable, but also, I say this politely to my friends in civil society, to be persuaders themselves for building, not blocking uh, the infrastructure we need. L last thing I'll say is change, changes of government after long periods of one party, I think, offer profound opportunity for the country. If Labour wins the election, I hope to work with you uh, in the months and years ahead to seize this moment for the benefit of the country. Thank you very much. Thank you, Ed. An enormous amount to, to pick up on there. Um, one of the points that has come up in your speech and has come yeah. up repeatedly today is the need for policy consistency, for a clear policy framework yeah. uh, for everything from unlocking investment to you know, supporting individual decisions at a household level. Um, Chris Skidmore said in his keynote earlier today that he thought the UK was missing out compared to, say, Germany and the US in the absence of such certainty. You've talked about the 2030 yeah. clean power goal. How else would Labour go about creating the certainty that, that so many have argued we lack at the moment? Well, I mean, first of all, I think just on the premise, you're right. I think it's not just certainty. I think the problem is, it's sort of what I said in the speech, it's sort of capriciousness of policy. See, this onshore wind ban, it's not the whole shooting match, but it is interesting because, you know, I think there have been sort of six or seven different changes of position on this in the last year of people saying, we are going to lift it, we're not going to lift it. If you're an investor in onshore wind, well, you know, it's just a hopeless situation for you. Um, so 2030 is part of it, but I recognise that in uh, industry, in uh, homes, in uh, land and nature, in transport, we have to do the same. Mm -hmm. um, and in a sense, that is, you know, that is the work we're doing. I mean, take home heating and, you know, the transformation of the housing stock. I mean, this is an, you know, I think the government has messed up repeatedly on it. But I think part of the reason they've messed up is it's hard, and part of the reason is they haven't had a long-term, put in place a long-term financing framework. Mm -hmm. They haven't put in place a long-term delivery framework. And so I don't have a sort of a, a full answer to that today, but we have people working on this. Um, and you know, we've been really helped by outsiders who are thinking about this. Um, but that's gotta be the intention. Yep. And I think, look, I think there is something also here, which is, the last thing I'll say, which is being evidence-led. Just take nuclear, for example. The government, I don't know whether it's still their target or not, uh, but you know, the government suddenly said they wanted 24 gigawatts of nuclear, but they sort of made it up. Uh, in fact, I saw one of the people involved in it who 
you know, it's, will be familiar to you. And I said, you know, uh, I saw him in the House of Commons before he left the House of Commons, so I think you know who I'm talking about. Uh, and, uh, you know, I said, you know, wh where did this 24 gigawatts come from? And he was sort of blustered. And I said, you know that the Climate Change Committee says 10 gigawatts. And he said, oh, do they? That's interesting. And I thought, oh, that's not great if you're the person that set the policy and you didn't know that. But so I think part of this is being evidence-led. Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, and I want people to know, and that's why the Climate Change Committee is really important, among other things, I, I want people to know, um, you know, they're not just making it up as they go along, they have a plan and they're following the evidence. Thank you. And of course, one part of that certainty is government's own investment. And there's been a lot of coverage of Labour's decision sure. to reprofile, sure. 28 billion to stay within the fiscal rules. I mean, what's your view of how, if Labour Gov does yeah. form the next government, that programme would actually be kind of scaled up and spent as effectively as possible? Because that's so often where government struggles when it comes to making the most of investment. Well, look, I think, Emma, you're, I mean, you're right. There's two reasons why we decided to do this. You know, when Rachel set out the commitment two years ago, it was setting out a, a direction of travel for government. But in, in all honesty, when you look at the prospect of getting £28 billion out of the door in a value for money way in year one of a government, mm -hmm. it's not very realistic. And so we knew at some point, and this is a discussion she and I have been having for a number of months, we knew at some point we were going to have to set out more of a, path, a pathway. And then obviously the trust disaster and the, the removal of a fiscal headroom uh, you know, also uh, caused us to, to move to this position. I think in anyone's language, to be getting to 28 billion a year uh, in the second half of the parliament is a large amount of money. It's a, significant, it's a significant sum. We've been quite cautious about where we have committed this money. It just might be useful for the audience to know that. A significant chunk of it is on home heating, mm -hmm. because we re so 6 billion a year, which we'll ramp up to, because we recognize the scale of the challenge. And when you, think, when you listen to the you know, six billion a year might sound like a lot, but it's not going to deal with the whole challenge we've got in relation to home heating, which is why it's going to need to have some blended public-private uh, finance uh, route forward. Um, so six billion a year on that, eight billion over the parliament, so not a year, but over the parliament in a national wealth fund to invest in our ports, our electric battery factories, steel industry, big long-term commitment, three, three billion over uh, 10 years. And then uh, investment in what I said was the British jobs bonus, which gives um, industry a sense of that they, if they locate in industrial areas and coastal communities of the UK, they'll get uh, investment and they'll get, if you like, a top-up, which is modelled on Biden. Um, and then GB Energy and the work it will do. And then we're looking at other areas like transport and nature and school buildings and you know areas like that that have got a very clear net zero implication. As to what the ramp up will be, that's obviously going to depend on the fiscal situation, which we'll know nearer the election. And let's just stay with GB Energy for a minute. Yeah. And this has obviously been another kind of key commitment, a publicly owned clean energy yeah. company. Can you tell us a bit more about yes. it and how it sits alongside government of investment? Course. How are you going to go about designing it? So maybe? the thinking behind GB Energy, which is, it's probably worth starting with the premise, is when you look at our... Two, two, two premises, actually. When you look at our clean energy infrastructure, 45% of our offshore wind industry is owned by state-owned foreign generating companies. State-owned, like nearly half. Uh, the city of Munich owns a lot more of our offshore wind infrastructure than the UK government. Now, is that a problem in itself? No, we want investment from, uh, we want foreign investment, but why has Britain has done well on offshore wind generation? Mm -hmm. 
but we have done very badly on the industrial benefits. If you like, the job surge hasn't come alongside the offshore wind power surge. And why is that? Our analysis of the countries that have done well on this, you take a country like Denmark and the role of Orsted, um, or Sweden and the role of Vattenfall, um, or Statcraft in Norway, they all in different ways, or EDF in France, they all in different ways have driven the supply chain um, and, and jobs in, in industrial jobs. So there's an industrial policy reason for doing it. There is a, secondly, a kind of de-risking of leading edge technology. So take floating wind, for example, um, or potentially uh, tidal, or some, some other areas. Nuclear, obviously, GB Nuclear is a government plan. There's a, there's a, there's a strong public case for public investment in those areas. And then in more mature technologies, we're more cautious about the role in mature technologies because there's lots of private capital, as I said, available. But if you check these local projects, actually, you know, local decentralized energy can make a contribution to reducing some of the pressures on the grid. Uh, and it can also buy community consent, you know, buy people into this with people getting benefit, and that's the role GB Energy is going to play. So look, there's a number of roles it can play, but we think there is a, a kind of market failure gap for a clean energy generator, and that's the thinking behind it. And how independent do you see it being from government? Well, it's not. It's, it's independent. I mean, it's, it's, you know, I think the, the, the experience suggests it's, you know, the Secretary of State is not going to be making the specific individual you know, investment decisions. Definitely. Thank you. I also, this is the IFG, so I want to ask about machinery of government change. Yep. Um, yep. It's obviously actually a really important subject yep. because so much of this work needs to be coordinated across government. Now, when you were last in government, Ed, you ran DEC. Yep. In lots of ways, something very similar to DEC has been recreated um, with government's most recent machinery. Which I'm very change. pleased about. Also, my first question to you is, are there going to be any more machinery of government changes in the net zero space under Labour? I mean, obviously, that's a matter for Keir, and I, so I won't sort of prejudge that. But, you know, I'm very pleased that they've gone back to having its own department. Mm -hmm. um, and I'm pleased because, we, you know, our plan was to set up our own department. But, you know, my experience of setting up a new department in 2008 was Moira and I in a, in a broom cupboard, uh, uh, sort of, you know, having to work out where, we, where our offices were and all of that. So um, I'm pleased that it's been done. And then we obviously have to look, you know, and this is going to be part of, uh, obviously, Keir's um, plans as to, you know, the, the exact role it plays in government. I think I'm less interested in from a net zero point of view, moving around the furniture again. I don't think that would be a good idea. And more, and this is something we're thinking quite a lot about, how do you get this key group of departments, because every department is a net zero department, true, but there's a group of five or six departments that are absolutely key, including the Treasury. And you know, some of the thinking we've been doing, talking to you know, excellent civil servants, former civil servants, uh, about this, is how do you get those departments working in a cross-cutting way together, which isn't just sort of, as Moira always says to me, you know, cabinet committee is a sign of failure. If it meets, it's a sign of failure or can be a sign of failure, you know, because it's just, it's been an unresolved dispute. You want, the, you want some method of working that gets, some of, that gets these decisions being co-owned by these departments. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things we're thinking about. 
And are you confident that a department that looks something like the department that exists at the moment can do that? Because DEC, um, when it existed, was really quite good at coordinating action on something like decarbonising the power sector, but struggled sometimes to coordinate across other goals. Do you think that you know, if you're back in government, you will be able to do that coordination, that, that shared work? I think you've got to be realistic about this, which is this doesn't work if it doesn't have the buy-in of the Prime Minister and the Treasury. Because if the Prime Minister and the Treasury don't care about this, then you know, the idea that Desnes can sort of overpower the rest of the machine is, is wrong. I think it's really important, so I said it in my remarks, I think it's really important that Kieran Keir's put it at the front of his agenda. Mm. Rachel was, I thought, incredibly far-sighted in talking about this you know, two years ago before Biden had his Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, and you know, has said she wants to be the first Green Chancellor and really cares about this. So I think, and obviously you need institutional structures that are going to reflect that, but in the end, it's political will. Yeah. Political will will determine the institutional structures and will determine whether you succeed. And I, you know, my strong confidence is that we have that political will. Thank you, Ed. Okay, we've got about 15 minutes left, so I'm going to open this up to the audience now. And there's going to be a roving mic uh, moving around for those who are in the room. I'm going to take questions in tranches of two or three. If you could let us know who you are and which organisation you're from. For those online, please do continue sending them online. I can see lots already popping up, and I will make sure I ask some of your questions too. Okay, who'd like to go first? I've got uh, one here, one here, one here. Hi, uh, Joseph Lewis, Institution of Environmental Sciences. Um, Thanks for the thumbs up. Um, so I, I want to build on the conversation that we've just had because I think you made a good case for this mission-driven approach to government. Um, but I think the challenge that comes with that for something like net zero is how do you keep focused on that North Star while still having sight of the co-benefits, the unintended consequences, the whole system-wide perspective? So I wonder if you could give us a bit more of your thinking around how you've approached that so that you can keep just sight explain of... explain what you mean, Joseph? So, for example, when you're talking about something like planning reform, this is maybe a good example because you're a little bit further along than you are with skills, for example. Yeah. How do you make sure that you reach that North Star target whilst not missing out on opportunities to still get things like good air quality protected, ecology protected, all of these other co-benefits that could get lost if you're focused on that core mission? Thank you. Put one over here. Uh, Matt Vickers from the Energy Ombudsman. Um, was just going to ask about, you know, you put four things in place there that you were saying that were potential barriers around, you know, the grid planning and so on. I'd add a fifth one around consumer trust. We're living in a world that's got really historic low consumer trust in a market and a society that's going to need high engagement. So interested about plans around that. Thank you. And then... Hello, Jane Elloway from Department for Energy Security and Net Zero, uh, and formerly of, of DEC back in your day. Um, we Which area do you cover, Jane, if I may ask? At the moment, non-domestic energy efficiency, but I'm about to move into domestic energy efficiency, big schemes. <laughs> yes, hope we come back to this. Um, uh, so, um, uh, we talked a little bit this morning, actually, it came up in other bits of conversation, uh, and other people have said, much as I believe in the power of government, government can't do this alone. Um, how do you think we go about uh, what would your be ideas around things like sort of hearts and minds, getting everybody to start mobilising behind this to make it a, a kind of a national response to this problem? Do you mean on energy efficiency or more generally? More generally, but yeah. obviously I'll take a plug for energy efficiency if it's going. <laughs> okay. such, such interesting questions. Um, 
Okay, the, the questions might be better than the answers. Uh, so, um, so is it Joseph? Yeah. I mean, look, I'm not saying there aren't trade-offs because to pretend there aren't any trade-offs on, say, something like planning is, would be wrong. But I'm struck that lots of the problems in planning are about not about whether you make sure that a planning decision is nature positive, but whether you do the same environmental analysis for the same decisions time and again, or almost the same decisions. So if you talk to the Crown Estate about the coordination of their marine spatial planning, for example. So I think there, I don't want to wish away the trade-offs, but I think there are ways in which you can move this forward. Um, and you know, after all, we were building, I think it's something like uh, two gigawatts a year of onshore wind before Cameron introduced the ban. So it wasn't like it was a situation where you just couldn't build. Um, and you know, you've got to be sensitive to which land are you using for solar and all of those things. You've got to be sensitive to local issues. But you know, I hope we can sort of acknowledge the trade-offs, grapple with the trade-offs, but also um, move past them. Matt, and let me just do a plug for the Energy Ombudsman because you're doing really important work, uh, as I know, and uh, upholding lots of complaints. Um, uh, I mean, I think this is obviously a massive issue, and you know, I had, didn't talk much about the retail market. I think the way, I think where this, the rubber really hits the road on this is thinking about how, and it goes to Jane's question or Jane's area of responsibility, how when you make the transition of home, in terms of home heating and households, do we do it in a way that people have trusted intermediaries? It can't just be a sort of free-for-all where people don't know whether the advice they're getting from the companies is right or wrong. I think there needs to, so I think in thinking about this delivery plan, I'm, one thing I'm very struck by, and I've talked to some of the people who've done the research on this, you've got to have trusted intermediaries that can provide some of the advice to consumers so they know where to go and they know who to ask. Uh, and so they've got some assurance that what they're getting is a, is a good thing. I think local authorities, by the way, can play a bigger role uh, in this, and I've been having interesting discussions with uh, 3CI, which is an organisation that brings together local authorities and the private sector. Um, but I think what, what we face is a massive challenge. Obviously, the energy price cap gives some guarantees, but not complete guarantees. Um, I mean, Jane, your question goes beyond... So I'm quite interested in this carbon literacy training, just because I... Uh, a guy in my constituency, I was saying to him on Friday, he's my poster, poster boy for this, because he did the carbon literacy training. He runs something called Cinetech, which takes used cars and sort of recycles parts of them uh, and, and remakes them. And he went on the carbon literacy training, and he is a brilliant advocate for it, because he says it's been transformative for him, for the people in his company. But I think thinking about how this department... I, one of the things that strikes me is the government, and the CCC says this, has been very, very anxious about doing any kind of public engagement. And I think there's public information, you know, public information is like a basic thing. We should be doing lots more public information. That's sort of, if you like, the sort of base layer. Uh, and then beyond that, you know, maybe offering people this carbon literacy training, giving, giving people, so that not, not to tell people what to do, but to inform them about the kind of things they can do. Because I think lots of people want to, at least this, my one person focus group, he said, look, I wanted to, didn't know what I could do. and. Go, doing this, doing this in my company has made a big difference to me. So that's a thought on that. 
Thanks, Ed. I want to take a few questions from the online audience now as well. And um, first one on green industrial policy. Yeah. Uh, given the UK has neither the frontier technologies, which are in the US, the manufacturing capacity, largely in China, or the market size of both of those or the EU, what should the UK's green industrial strategy policy look like? Yeah. Um, we've got another one on uh, fiscal rules and how and they're yeah. to play with uh, with net zero. Rachel Rees has, of course, uh, spoken of ironclad discipline, following strict fiscal rules, reducing national debt and so on. Is that really compatible uh, with your plans on net zero? And then a question on, on just transition. Uh, Sam Mason says you, you haven't yet mentioned workers and trade unions. Where do you see working with trade unions to ensure this transition happens at pace and scale? And how will Labour, in, labor ensure there is a just transition for workers? Okay, so um, good, really good questions. Uh, on green industrial policy, I think that the, I think there's reasons to feel a sense of possibility about Britain. You know, the North Sea is a huge asset for the green economy of the future. When you think about carbon capture, when you think about hydrogen, uh, when you think about um, fixed offshore wind, I mean, part of the reason we're doing well is because of the geography of the North Sea, the Celtic Sea too. So I think we can be a bit too pessimistic about Britain's possibilities in this. And also, let me just say on this, I think there's a sort of a kind of misperception here I think Europe has been far too negative about the Inflation Reduction Act, as if all of the business is going to go to the US. I mean, the IEA says we need $5 trillion of investment each year, public and private, in the green economy from 2030 to 2050. The idea that it's all going to be in the US, you know, it, it just seems to me Europe overreacted uh, to it. We should learn from what IRA is doing. We can't emulate IRA, we can't do it in every area, but there are areas of strength. I mean, I might also say, you know, automotive, steel are really, really important. If you want a steel industry, we need to invest, co-invest with the private sector. If we don't want a steel industry, that's, that's where the government is going. We want to have a thriving steel industry, not least for national security, economic security. So, so I think there's kind of lots of areas we can, do, we can do well in, and I think one shouldn't be too pessimistic. Um, on the fiscal rules, yes, it is compatible with the fiscal rules. Rachel's rule is that uh, the debt is uh, falling in the next parliament as a proportion of GDP. Um, what, let me just say one thing, though, about why is this investment important? Because some people might think, well, why does this need to happen? We're in a doom loop of low growth. We've got to get out of this doom loop. And this is the, this is the, the massive opportunity to do that, first point. Um, Second point, there is obviously a global race on supercharged by, the, by IRA. We can decide to sit, sit it out and lose, or we can be part of it. Um, and all of the evidence from what Denmark did on offshore wind, for example, is you've got to get in early to succeed. And thirdly, the OBR, it's the kind of thing I read up late at night, the long-term fiscal risks report. I strongly recommend it as bedtime reading. Uh, you know, it says very clearly two very important things. One, if we delay by a decade, we double the cost of the transition because you lock in high carbon choices. And two, if you don't act on climate, you could end up with um, debt to GDP at 289% by 2100. You know, if those don't give you uh, confidence that the prudent, cautious, sensible choice is to invest then I don't know what does. So I think there's really good evidence why we can do it and we can do it within our fiscal rules. I'm glad Sam asked about the just transition. This is incredibly important. And in a way, I, look, the way I think about this is I want us to be judged on whether we do a just transition. Um, I, think it is, I think it's totally 
a fair and correct thing for us to be judged on. And the thing that strikes me is, look, there are 28,000 workers uh, working in the direct, directly employed in North Sea uh, oil and gas. And those workers are going to be very important, carrying on for decades in existing fields. But the truth is that whether you adopt the government's position of extracting every last drop from the North Sea, which I think is the wrong position for climate and investment and other reasons, uh, or you adopt uh, our position, which is not issue licenses to explore new fields, North the North Sea is declining. Mm -hmm. And you can either decide you're going to have a future for those workers or decide you're not. And I'm afraid the inaction the government is showing in relation to IRA and all of these challenges is deciding those workers aren't going to have a future. And I thought a Unite official actually put it to me incredibly well. He said, look, those workers are the workers to decarbonise our country in hydrogen, in carbon capture, in offshore wind. And that is the future we've got to build with them. We've got to build with the workers, Sam is right about this, central to this. And also it's a challenge for the industry. And I've said this to the offshore wind industry. They've said to us, your plans will create 120,000 jobs in offshore wind by 2030. Um, uh, and I've said to them, great, now let's make sure we use the skills of oil and gas workers in those plans. Okay, I think we've got time for one more round of questions. So put your hands up. If there's anybody in the next room, because I know that room's filled too, that wants to, put, to ask a question, do just uh, stick your head around the door. Okay, got one here and one at the back there. Hi there, um, Emily Spearpoint Walsh, also from Desness. Which area uh, do you cover? Uh, so I was on domestic energy efficiency and now I'm responsible for extending the Paris Agreement to the UK's overseas territories. Great. <laughs> How's it going? <laughs> um, not, not solely. Off the record, okay. No problem. Um, so, um, yeah, I thought it was interesting what you were talking about with energy security um, and kind of seeing energy security and net zero as kind of part of one mission rather than necessarily yeah. separate missions. So in terms of you were saying about kind of keeping DESNES and keeping that department, I was wondering kind of how and to what extent you would reshape the mission of the department if Labour did come into government and kind of what you see about the challenges and opportunities in terms of framing net zero as part of energy security and separating them out. Very good question. Thank you. Then one at the back. Hi, thank you. Ashur Nissan from Kaya Partners. I wanted to ask about a couple of things. We heard earlier about climate leadership and we also heard that the IRA is a race or rather there's a race going on and, and making, you know, probably asking you the difficult questions which you want. If, if everything cannot be replicated here, as it cannot, how will you select, do you have a protocol for selecting what should be happening here in the UK? Batteries, you know, yes or no. Uh, manufacture of products rather than their installation. So what is the way in which the government you would be a member of would choose those areas in order to provide you know, an answer or a, a vision for the people that operate in them? Thank you. And then we've got one here. Hi, thanks very much. I'm David Blackman from Utility Week from the other room. Um, just, uh, just wanted to sort of touch on, um, to, to just explore a little bit more about machinery government, which we were talking about. There were quite a lot. There was quite a sort of strong discussion this morning about the idea of the office for the office for I think for net for net zero recommendation from the IFG and sort of taken up by Chris Skidmore. Um, 
on, on, on the grounds that this would prevent the slippage in the kind of areas like housing and transport where we certainly did see slip, where, where there was slippage when, 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 when DEC was around in the early part of the last decade. Um, do you see a case for an organisation like that or does it fall into the camp of the Cabinet Committee, as you said, a kind of a sign of failure? Thank you. Thank you. So we've got reshaping the mission of the department. How do you make choices, select what to back, and uh, is there a case for an office yeah. for net zero delivery? Um, is it Annalisa? Emily. Emily, sorry, I did miss her. Uh, uh, Emily, I think you put it really well, which is, and I haven't quite thought about it like this until you've asked it in that way, which is that, you know, implicit in the title, maybe, is that these two things are somehow in contradiction or query when in fact they're not at all. And I think you're right to think that, um, well, from our point of view, the two aren't in contradiction. And so in terms of the mission of the department, you know, I think I've sort of indicated at least as far as the sort of energy part of it is concerned, it's a absolute all out sprint for 2030. And that that is absolutely key to the mission of the department. Um, obviously, then we've responsible. The current department is responsible for home heating and uh, transition and, and other things. But I think, I think, I think really, I mean, the way I the way I talk about it in this order is, this is the key to lower bills, energy security, jobs of the future, and climate action. And I think that's the way I think about what the department is all about, really. Um, the question about decision-making, I mean, this is a hard question. I think politicians have to set the framework for areas, and this is actually, to be fair, this is what Greg Clark did when he was business secretary uh, under Theresa May, uh, has got to set the direction for areas that it thinks are important, industrial, you know, areas for Britain to succeed in. Um, and I think I've given you an indication of some of the areas where I think we can succeed. I think, look, saying we are going to be the world-beating country in solar panels, for example, given where, where the state of the market is, is unlikely, uh, given China and all of that. Um, but I think, so I think I've given you some areas where I think um, we can really make a, a, a you know, strong case that Britain has huge potential. I think, by the way, the other thing to say in this, just in, in sort of in brackets, is there's also massive opportunities for collaboration with other, other countries. When you think about the North Sea and, the, and, the, and the, the, uh, the, the association of countries around the North Sea and thinking about grids and so on, I mean, there's huge potential for cooperation. So, so I think government sets the areas um, where we want to succeed. I don't think it's for government ministers to say we're going to... I think you want some transparency and some arm's length and a bit more arm's length nature to some of the decisions about who the money is invested in and where the money is invested. That's the kind of way I um, think about it. And then on the uh, utility week uh, question, I'm, it's very tempting to sort of freewheel about the machine of government. I think I won't. Um, I think... I think the, 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 I'm not going to talk about the institutions and what the institutions look like. I think what is true is, I want to underline this point about delivery, is that look, I always felt that the Prime Minister's delivery unit, and I'm not suggesting a Prime Minister's delivery unit, but I'm just saying that the, the general principle of Michael Barber, and the, you know, I sort of grew up under Michael Barber, so that's like a strange thing to say, uh, but the, the, the Michael Barber's delivery unit, I think that was a very good discipline for government that there was an institution in government 
that thought, how are we going to make sure that we don't just promise something, but we actually deliver it? And by the way, this isn't that people aren't focused on these things. It's more that if you, if you end up facing barriers, how are they going to be broken down? So I think, I, I don't know about the detail of what the discussion was this morning, but I think the, the idea of, uh, 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 you know, part of, I would guess, part of my department or part of government making sure that you don't just set the policy, but there is a real accountability for delivery, I think is a really, really important concept. Thank you, Ed. I think we're already over time, so sadly I'm going to have to draw us to a close there. Um, thank you so much to our audience, both in person and online, for brilliant questions. And Ed, thank you uh, most of all to you for such a rich discussion. Thank you. Thank you.